Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Let's carry on with our series on beginnings, part five of beginnings. And we're, we're uh, uh, in this series on beginnings, we're looking through the first uh, two chapters of Genesis. There is so much in the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, they are the first chapters, the beginnings of the whole Bible. And in them, we learn about the beginnings of creation. We learn about the beginnings of, of sin. I mean, that happens in Genesis 3, but in these first chapters. And all of these beginnings have huge implications for the rest of the Bible, for all of our theology, and for our worldview. And, uh, and of course, then two weeks ago, uh, we talked about uh, the beginnings of, and we talked about marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman is the culmination of the creation story at the very end of chapter 2. And uh, I want to go back in there today just a little bit, and I want to talk about two uh, really huge hot-button topics in our culture today, and that is, uh, uh, I want to talk one more time a little bit, tie up some loose ends about uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction, and then I want to also talk about transgenderism. And, uh, and so uh, I just think if the church can't talk, if we can't talk about these things at church, where can we talk about them? This is what everybody's talking about today. And, uh, and the Bible has something to say about these issues, and, the, and as a church, we need to have clarity. And so this message today is really a lot about clarity, but I want to read you two verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig into this. But Genesis 1 verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is beginnings, right? And in the beginning, God made two types of people. He made male and female. And then, of course, Genesis 2.24, as a result of this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let's pray, and, uh, and then let's look again into these beginnings. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom we have in this country to worship you. And thank you for this community we live in. And Lord, we want to be a blessing. As your people, we want to be a, a light on the, on the hill. We want to be a blessing to this community. We want this community to be better off because we're here. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to minister to so many people on Friday at the Thanksgiving Food and Clothing Drive. And, uh, and thank you for the generosity of this church family. I'm so proud and happy to be a part of this church family. Thank you for that. And now, Lord, today as we dig into your word, and as we dig into, again, Genesis 1 and 2 in this series on beginnings, fill us with your heart for the lost. Fill us with compassion, Lord Jesus, compassion that comes without compromise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before I get into this topic, uh, you know, two weeks ago I talked uh, a bit about tolerance and the importance of understanding what tolerance really is. Uh, one of the things that I see happening in our culture is the definition of words is evolving and changing. And that can be a very dangerous thing when words change their meaning. The battleground changes. And sometimes when words have changed their meaning, uh, you, can, you can enter into conversations and debates in society and you've already lost the debate before you've started because, because the definitions have shifted. And so we always have to pay attention to those things. And, and I talked about that in the tolerance section two weeks ago. But today, just before we get started, I want to talk just briefly for a moment about empathy because today's message is about clarity. It's about thinking. How do we think about these issues? But in order for us to think properly, I, I never want us to be uh, a church where we have this clarity of thinking, but we don't have any heart. Because if we don't have any heart, Jesus said the most important commandment is love God and love people. Those are the most important ones. Amen. 
Love God and love people. And so I want to make sure that even as we talk about clarity of thought, that we also are filled with empathy in our hearts. So what is empathy? Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. In other words, empathy is the ability for me to, to, to kind of walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And I think too often in the areas of, uh, you know, homosexuality and transgenderism, I think too often the church has failed to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And when we fail to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, then no matter how hard we hold to the Bible, we, we miss what the Bible is actually saying and calling to people. And so I think it's important that before we uh, talk to people about what is right and wrong, that we approach it from the right heart. And so what I want to do is I want to start this message by just doing a little thought experiment, just for, a, just for a, a minute, and just very briefly. And we can never, you know, especially in a service this big, we can never really get into somebody else's shoes. But I want us to switch our perspective of how we approach some of these issues so that we can approach them confidently and, and faithfully to the Word of God, but also approach them the way Jesus would approach them, which is overflowing with God's love. And so this morning, I just want to take you on just a, just a very overly quick and overly simplified journey, but I want us to put, your, put ourselves in the shoes of a, of a nine-year-old boy today. And I don't know how many of you can remember being a nine-year-old boy. I can remember being nine years old. There's a whole segment of my life there from nine till 13 or 14 or 15 or 18, but uh, where, you know, a lot of that I would rather forget because it was just so awkward and bizarre, the things that came out of my behavior and my mouth and all those, those sorts of things. I don't know if any, can any of you empathize with me on that one, please? Uh, tell me I'm not the only one. But uh, uh, nine years old, already at nine years old, when you're in, when you're in school, uh, there's so much insecurity already, right? And, and you're trying to fit in. I remember being nine years old, and, and, and when you're nine years old already in those ages, you're, you're trying to figure out the pecking order and where you fit into things. Isn't that true? So, you know, who's the tallest? Who's the strongest? Uh, who's the fastest? Who's the smartest? You're trying to figure out where you fit in. And, if, and girls have their own pecking order based on, you know, other criteria. But, but you're trying to fit in. You feel insecure, and you're dealing with that. Now, I want you to put your, I want us today to just think for a moment about a nine-year-old boy who has same-sex attraction already at that age. This happens. And at nine years old, uh, already lots of the other boys in school are starting to notice girls. Now, they're not admitting to noticing girls at this point. They still say they have cooties and they're gross and eh, all this sort of stuff. But the reason they're saying all those things is because they're already starting to notice them. And here you are, you're nine years old, and all the boys in your class are kind of starting to notice girls, even though it's sort of in a weird way, it's a very immature way, but, but you're not noticing them. And, and of course, you hide it because you're nine, you don't want, you don't want to stick out. You don't want to give anybody uh, margin for, you know, calling you names or making fun of you. And maybe you think to yourself, at that age, you're not even really able to consciously work through what's all happening inside of you, but uh, you maybe just work through, like, maybe it'll change yet at some point. And so you don't say anything about it, and you just kind of go along, and you act like everyone else. Now, some years go by, right? 10, 11, 12, 13. By 12, 13, for sure, all the guys in your class are noticing girls. Again, they don't know how to talk to a girl. They don't know how to pursue a girl. Heaven, no, they don't, okay? Uh, they're very immature about it, but they, for sure, at 12 or 13, they have noticed that there is this other group of beings called females that are 
interesting and, and many different things, scary, but they've noticed them. But now, here you are, you're 12 or 13, and all the boys are attracted to girls, but you still aren't attracted to girls. And in all of your insecurity and trying to fit in, you're also starting to notice now that not only are you not attracted to girls, you're actually attracted to other boys. And you have no idea what on earth you're going to do with this. Because again, when you're 12, 13, everything. Where do I fit in? Who likes me? Am I valuable? What am I good at? And maybe at this time, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but maybe already at this time too, you're, you're also, your interests are different. And, and this might or might not be true. It's not true in all cases, but maybe your interests are different as well. Maybe the boys have more what's considered boy interests, and your interests are not in those areas. Your interests are in other areas. And so now some of the other guys start to notice that you're different. And you start to dread going to school because you know they're going to call you girl and sissy and whatever other terrible things they use nowadays to, to call you names. And now at this point already, you start to wish you could change. You think to yourself, I've got to change the way I feel. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. In some cases, maybe you don't want to change. But I, certainly in some cases, there's this desire, I would really like to change this. But you don't know who to talk to. Maybe you don't feel safe in your family to talk about this. You might be afraid of being ridiculed or punished by your family. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not. If you're a Christian, maybe you don't feel safe in your church to mention this. You just think, I've got to pray or I've got to do something. I've got to change this. And so you really focus on, I've got to change what's going on inside of me. And you try and you try and you try and you try. And years go by, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and nothing you try works. It just becomes more set in your brain how you feel. And now I want you to think, and, and, and all the other things that come with that, okay? All the insecurities, all the fear, all the confusion, all the hiddenness, okay? And I want you to imagine Jesus meets a person like this. How does Jesus treat this person? Does he start by smashing them over the head with right or wrong? Is that what we read about Jesus in the Gospels? What did Jesus do when he met the woman caught in adultery? He said, the first words he said to her were, Neither do I condemn you. Do, you. do you ever think about how much that must have just impacted her? Neither do I condemn you. Wow, that must have felt good. Then, of course, he said, go and sin no more. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. He was firmly in the empathy and love camp, and he was also still firmly in the camp of what is right and wrong. I mean, when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, right, nobody would touch Zacchaeus. Literally, no self-respecting Jew would touch Zacchaeus. This was a greedy immoral person who, who outright took advantage of people and had gotten wealthy on the backs of the poor. And Zacchaeus says hi to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm coming over to your house today. I'm going to have some tea with you, as the song says, I believe, right? And uh, he goes over to his house. So he goes over to his house. That's the empathy side. Everybody's like, what are you doing going to the house of a wicked person like that? And of course, so, but Jesus goes, that's the empathy side. Now, by the end of the lunch, Zacchaeus is giving half his money to the poor and restoring everything where he's done wrong. He's, Jesus is firmly in the camp of righteousness and holiness and God's commands. There's no question. But does he come in as Zacchaeus and just run over him with a debate about right or wrong? That is not how Jesus approaches it. And I, I feel like in our society more and more, it takes a spiritually mature person and an emotionally mature person to be able to stand in both camps to be filled with empathy for a person and at the same time to be able to stand 
confidently in the Word of God and God's commands about what is right or wrong. But in our society, that's increasingly rare. And in the church, that's increasingly rare. Our society as a whole seems to be losing emotional maturity, and that's happening in the church as well. There's less and less emotional maturity. There's less and less spiritual maturity. And so what you have is people who are not spiritually and emotionally mature can't stand in both camps. They have to pick one or the other. So the people who are bent more towards empathy, they go full over in the empathy, and they empathize with people so closely that they can no longer discern between right and wrong. And the people who bend more towards the God's commands are, 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 are uh, you know, that's our, our, our ruler, that's our standard. They go right over here and they lose the empathy and all they can do is, is, is bark and command and yell and argue about what is right or wrong. But what I want us to do as we engage with this topic and as we engage with our society is I want us not to think about this issue as all the bad, wicked, evil, perverted people out there in general. I'm not, I'm not pointing out any one group, but that's sort of as a Christian stereotype sometimes of the way our, we look at our society. And I want us instead, if we're going to think about this, these sorts of topics, to think about that nine-year-old boy or that nine-year-old girl who didn't choose it. And that's, by the way, my first point. I want to, there's a few things, because today is about clarity. And I want to put some things up on the PowerPoint so we think properly about things. And my first point here is that same-sex attraction is not a choice, okay? Same-sex intercourse is a choice. That's an action. Same-sex attraction is not a choice, okay? And it feels like sometimes the reason some Christians lack complete empathy in this area is it's almost like this vastly oversimplified stereotyped view, this idea that, you know, someone wakes up in the morning and just thinks, I'm going to rebel against God uh, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to choose to be attracted to members of the opposite sex. People don't get up one morning and choose who they're going to be attracted to. Did you choose who you were going to be attracted to? I don't ever remember making a choice that I was going to be attracted to females. That was never a choice I made. It just, it happened in me. Now, I know some of you are feeling awfully uncomfortable right now, but I want you to just to think about that for a moment. None of us got up one morning and said, I'm going to be attracted this way, I'm going to be attracted that way. It just sort of happens, and there's all kinds of complicated reasons uh, why, in some cases, people, uh, you know, end up with a same-sex attraction. But I want you to think about that 9-year-old boy, that 12-year-old girl, that 15-year-old, that 18-year-old, that 20-year-old, whoever. And I want you to think about the fact that some of the commands in here, so for some of those people, the prohibition, you know, the prohibition, you know, uh, uh, marriages between uh, uh, one man and one woman. Or the prohibitions, you know, don't practice homosexuality in the New Testament, the Old Testament. For some people, those are very painful commands to obey. We actually need to acknowledge that as a Christian church. For some people, those are actually hard. For you, they might be easy. You just look at them, ah, oh, that's an easy one. Why do I, you know, thank goodness they put that in the Bible to get someone else, right? But I want you to think about the commands that are actually painful for you to obey. See, we like to sometimes pick on some, but there are, each of us has, there's different commands for each of us. For one person, this command is painful and this one isn't. For another person, this command is painful and this one isn't. I mean, for example, you know, you look at the New Testament command to forgive. And I know people in this church who have gone through really horrific things. And that command, Jesus does not, he, he, he doesn't give us any outs. There's no, 
compromise on that. He says, you must forgive. And I know people in this church where the process of forgiving, the things that have been done to them are so horrible, the process of forgiving some of those specific people was a long and very painful pick-up-your-cross process. But the fact that it was painful doesn't mean that it's not one of God's commands. But my point is, for one, this one is painful, for one, that, but we need to have empathy that some of these commands are deeply painful for people. Same-sex attraction is not a choice. And uh, although same-sex intercourse is, which brings me to the next thing, which is same-sex attraction is not a sin, although same-sex intercourse is. Um, if same-sex attraction is not a choice, why, how would God hold anyone accountable for something that is beyond their control? Okay, now again, I know some of you are worried. I'm going to deal with some of those, what you're worried about. But let me show you. It's interesting that this, this book is the newest parts of this book are, you know, just about 2,000 years old. And the oldest ones are, are over 3,000 years old. But it's amazing to me that even now today, in today's day and age, it speaks so specifically and clearly to what it is that is a sin. And it's clear in the Bible that it is same-sex intercourse, the action that is a sin, not the attraction I'll just take you to a couple of places. First of all, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, two things there. First of all, it's very clear here that the Bible teaches that same-sex intercourse is a sin. It's very clear. New Testament, Old Testament is from beginning to end. It's very clear. But I also want you to notice here that it's also very clear about what it is. It is men who practice homosexuality. It is the action, not the attraction. Okay? One is out of a person's control. One is part of a person's control. All right? I want to just show you one more. Leviticus 18. You shall not lie. We looked at this passage briefly two weeks ago as well. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And again, I want you to notice it does not say he is an abomination or they are an abomination. People are not abominations to God. It, it's a, it's a behavior. It's the, it's the lying. It's the action. Does that make sense? And this kind of clarity of thought is very important for Christians. Sometimes we're fuzzy and we don't know how to, how to approach these things. This is very important for us if we're going to follow Jesus in today's day and age, if we're going to actually reach people and do what Jesus did, which is he loved people. So same-sex attraction is, is not a sin, although same-sex intercourse is. Now, some Christians are afraid, wait a minute, wait a minute, and this is where some of the fear is. If same-sex attraction is not a choice, are you saying that God makes people uh, homosexual? In which case, and here's where some of the argumentation is, is now. Some of the argument is, you know, I was just born that way, therefore that's how God made me, or that's natural, that's the natural thing for me, that's how God made me, therefore it's okay. And that kind of reasoning is perfectly fine. If you're not part of the church, if you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, that's a different conversation. If you don't believe that the Bible is God's Word, if you don't believe in God, then yeah, I was born with this, it's natural, therefore it's okay. That's, that's perfectly fine reasoning, that's for a different that's for a different talk. I'm not talking to people outside the church today. I'm talking to people inside the church. And increasingly, and again, I'm not trying to pick on these people. It's just to kind of differentiate where we're on the spectrum, but theologically liberal people. And again, lots of wonderful people over here. We don't, we're not against them. We're not mad at them. But 
uh, lots of Christians nowadays, more to the theologically liberal end of the spectrum, are using exactly that kind of reasoning. You know, this person didn't choose to have that happen. Therefore, that's how God made them. Therefore, it's okay. They just need to be who God made them to be. Now, again, if you're outside of the church and you want to use that kind of argument, that actually, you know, that, that's workable, and that's a different discussion. But if you claim that to say that the Bible is the Word of God, then that kind of argument has absolutely no foundation, theological or logical, if this is God's Word. The argument that because it comes naturally to me, that must be how God made me, therefore it's okay if I behave that way, is not only not in the Bible, it is expressly opposite to one of the major theological points the Bible makes, and that is this. And part of the reason I wanted to preach this message is because I wanted to hit this theological point because it's so essential to the gospel. And the point is this, the Bible teaches that we are all born into a fallen, sinful state. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not a minor teaching. That is the major teaching of the gospel, is that every one of us, every human being, is born broken. We're not born naturally good. That's the point. That's the Bible's teaching. That's why we need Jesus. Amen. We're not born naturally good, and then we mess up sometimes by accident. We're actually born naturally broken, fallen, and sinful, which means that we cannot trust our natural desires because our natural desires have been warped. I'll show you just several passages here, but we can look at many. This is the main teaching of the New Testament, James 1, 14 to 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the teaching of the New Testament writers, all of them, I'll show you a couple more in just a moment, is the stuff that, the desires that come up from inside of you actually need to be mistrusted. You can't tell what's right or wrong by what you want to do. You have to compare what you want to do by the only thing that can tell you right or wrong, which is this book. Because what you desire to do might be very sinful. And if you act out on that, you're going to sin, and that sin is going to lead to death, which is not just talking about physical death, but separation from God, separation in your relationships, and, the, and destruction in your life, whether you feel like it's the right thing to do or not. Ephesians chapter 2 is another powerful passage. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Look at this. Carrying out the desires of our body and, the, and mind. Carrying out the desires. Paul said there's a big contrast in all of Paul's writings. The people who are under the power of, of the world and not under the power of Jesus are controlled by their desires. But then the whole Bible contrasts people who are of the world are controlled by their desires, but people who have given their lives to Jesus are now slaves to Jesus instead of their desires. So the fact that I'm born with desires to do something certainly does not mean that those things I want to do are right. Does that make sense? And all of us know this to be true. All of us are born, just, just that the desires differ in, in, in many different ways, but all of us are born with desires that we must put aside. I love how Jeremiah says it. Uh, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Doesn't that perfectly capture their, the state of our hearts? Okay, our hearts can't be trusted. Our feelings can't be trusted. They have to be examined in the light of God's word. And that's why I want to show you one more passage uh, on this topic, and then we're going to shift gears a little bit. The whole teaching of Scripture is that the Christian life is not about embracing who we naturally are. The message of the gospel is not embrace, you know, your natural desires and that's who you are. The, the thrust of the gospel is by the Spirit you need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Amen. Romans chapter 8 says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Now I want you to notice those words, put to death. This implies struggle. This is not doing what comes naturally. This means actually doing what God wants you to do will sometimes be deeply painful. But in our culture today, this is an increasing push, and it's come into the church in certain you know, spectrums of the church where people think, if it's painful, it can't be good for me. If it's painful and it's not natural to me, then I'm going against who God made me. But this is what the gospel says, put to death. Sometimes, Jesus did not say, you know, it's going to be easy to follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Your natural desires are broken. And sometimes following Jesus, putting those, things, those deeds of the flesh and those desires of the flesh aside could be extremely painful and hard. But our hope is for the future. When we get a resurrected body and our, and our desires are changed and our reward comes from submitting to Jesus now and obeying him. So the argument, again, again, if you're outside of the church and you don't believe in the Bible, it's a totally different thing. But if you say that you're a Christian and that you believe the Bible is God's word, the argument that same-sex intercourse is okay because it's my natural inclination and attraction is completely foreign to the Bible. And I think that's important. We need to understand what the gospel message truly is. I, I want to switch gears here now, and I want to talk about this other hot topic in our society, which is, which is transgenderism. And again... You know, you might be a person in our church and you're going, why on earth are we talking about these things at church? And this just isn't where you're at in your stage of life. But just so you know, this is a massive topic for all of our young people. This is a massive topic. I don't remember ever hearing about this topic or thinking about this topic, you know, 20, you know, just over 20 years ago when I was in high school. And now it is everywhere. But it's not just in high school. It's in our whole culture. And we have more and more people, people where... Uh, like a man who will say, I don't feel like a man, I'd rather be a woman and wants to live as a woman. Or we have the other way, we have people who are uh, a woman and they say, I don't feel like a woman, a woman, I feel like a man, and they want to live as a man. And we even have increasingly more and more people are getting surgeries to actually change, try to change their biological sex. This is, this is an increasing thing. This is huge in our society right now. Everybody's talking about it in our schools, and in the media, and the question is, how are we Christians to respond? And again, by the way, again, I just want to say this. If, if we don't talk about these things in churches, to me, it's the saddest thing that churches just don't talk about these things. If we don't talk about them here, where can people talk about them? We're just going to leave people to go out there and try to figure it out on their own? And parents with, with kids in school, if they can't talk about it in your family, where, 
they're going to talk about it somewhere. They're going to think about it somewhere. Why wouldn't we be having these conversations at home and in the church? I think that's huge. So the question is, how should we as Christians respond? What does the Bible say about this? And the first thing is, in all things, at all times, we always respond with love and empathy. Always. That's just the first thing. You know, and then figure out what you're going to do next. But the first thing is love and empathy. And then now, from there, what am I going to do? Okay? You know, if you're a high school student and a boy sits down beside you who's dressed like a girl and he wants to be a girl, what do you do? That's not, that's not a, a question that, that's not a theoretical question for our kids anymore. That's a real question. And too often in the past, the way people in society and, and people in the church, too often in the past, to that sort of a situation, people just responded, ooh, get away from me. Is that how Jesus would treat people? That's not how Jesus would treat people. We've got to respond with love and compassion. And it's a fact that people who identify as transgender have massively increased rates of suicide and depression and mental illness. That's absolutely true. So they need empathy. Now, of course, I would add to that, though. My, so first of all, they need empathy, and it's true. There's many struggles there. I would add to that, though, a question. My next question just is, is the best way to love these people to encourage them to keep trying to be something they're not? So that's also a valid question. We need to love and support, yes. Without question, we love and bless people and have empathy. But my next question is, as a society and as people, is the best way to love a person who considers themselves transgender, is the best way to love them, to continue to encourage them to try to be something they're not? Well, let's look at again what the Bible says and and let's think about these things for just a few minutes here at the end of the message. Genesis 1.27, God, again, we'll go back there. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So the Bible says that God created us in two types. And biology and nature bear this out. I mean, if we go down to the DNA level, to the chromosomes, a female has an X and an X chromosome, and a male has an X and a Y chromosome. Now, there are some things I'll talk about in just a few minutes with intersex and things like that. You're going to hear all kinds of interesting things in the message today. Um, variations on a theme. But if you go down to the, to the DNA level, you've got trillions of cells in your body. And trillions of times over, if you're here today and you're a guy, you've got an X and a Y. And if you're a woman, trillions of times over, you have an X and an X. Right at the very uh, you know, basic building blocks of our bodies, there is a fundamental difference. There's fundamental differences between male and female at the brain level, okay, and, and most of you, any of you who's married did not need studies to show you this, but <laughs> I was looking up, I was on the Stanford medical site this, this last week, and they've got tons of studies and, and different things, but showing that the function and structure of the female brain and the male brain are just totally different. And again, if, if you're a husband, you've always known that your wife thinks a lot differently than you do, right? And, uh, and she doesn't think like you at all. And if you're a, a woman, you know your husband doesn't think at all. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and you think about the systems. I mean, it's interesting to me that systems, you know, all the systems in your body, except for one, are absolutely complete in and of themselves. So like your circulatory system is, is complete in and of itself. You don't, you don't need to plug into someone else to get some of their you know, some of their veins and arteries. Uh, your digestive system 
is complete in and of itself. You don't need to plug into someone else to borrow their intestine and they borrow your stomach or anything like that. All your systems are complete systems in and of themselves, except one. Except one. And that's the reproductive system. The reproductive system, you, every human being, you only have half. You have half. And, uh, and you need a man and a woman to come together to get a complete system. And it's interesting to me, again, that it was, the reproductive system was not divided up into three or four or five or one. It was divided exactly into two. Just like it says in Genesis, male and female, he created them. There isn't a third way. There isn't a fourth way. There isn't a fifth way. Now, I want to deal with one objection, and, and we have to do this. Again, for some of you, you'll go, why does he have to go into this? This because, but for some of you, you're already asking this question. I, I can't tell you. Numbers of people have been asking me this recently and again last night. Uh, one of the reasons, again, and I don't care about the arguments so much for today's message. I don't care about the arguments being made out there. That's a different discussion. People don't believe that the Bible is God's word. But I really care, what do people who say, you know, what does God's word say and how should Christians, people who believe in God's word, what should we say? There's an increasing argument being made by people who are Christians. It's even being made in Bible colleges today. And... Uh, um, and, and the, the argument is, by people who say they believe God's word is, is the word of God, but they are teaching people that there's not two genders. You've got male and female, and they're teaching that it's a continuum between male and female, and there's all kinds of stuff in between, and it's up to people to pick what gender they are. And, uh, and these are people who say that the Bible is the word of God. So, uh, and, and, but how they build their argument is they, they start with the argument and what they say is, and we know this to be true because there are people born around the world who are what is called intersex, okay? So they're called intersex. Now, what is a person who's born intersex? And this is a real thing that happens, okay? There is a small percentage of people, and by the way, I met, we have people like this in our church, and I, I met a couple last night, which is uh, very interesting. But anyway, um, there's a small percentage of people born, uh, you know, it happens all the time around the world, year-round. There's a small percentage of people who are born uh, who, for various reasons, are born with a mixture of male and female parts. And there's different reasons why this happens. There's no question that this does happen. And we need to have so much compassion we need to have so much compassion for someone who is born this way. Oh, we have to have compassion for them. But what we can't stand for is other people using these people for a political agenda to advance this idea that gender is a continuum and you just have to pick it. Okay? And so they use this idea that people are born intersex and say, see, God didn't intend there just to be male and female. He intended to be all in between. So let's talk about that for just a moment. First of all, there's a few different, you know, common reasons within that small percentage of people there's a few different reasons that are common why people are born this way and i'm not going to go into the science of each one but just to use a couple of examples to just show you this uh, for example uh, sometimes what you'll have is you'll have a, a woman with a, a healthy woman with working uh, ovaries and all that sort of stuff uh, with an xx chromosome well, or xx chromosomes but in the womb uh, before she's born, she gets, for, mistakes get made. Sometimes, you know, genetic things happen, and she gets exposed to too much male hormone before she's born. 
And after she's born, she'll, because she's XX chromosome, she's, so she's clearly a female, she has working uh, ovaries, but she'll actually be born externally. It'll look like she has male genitals. They won't be working, but it'll look like she has male genitals. And so again, so here's an intersex person, and, and, you, and, and people go, see, God made them in between. But the, but, the, uh, but the truth of the matter is, first of all, she's still clearly a woman. She's XX chromosome. She has working ovaries and not working male genitals. This is not a person who's not a woman. She is a woman. And of course, because of the way she's born, she's going to have some extra challenges in life. And much compassion and love is required. But to say based on that, that there is a continuum of gender is, is, uh, is actually false. Furthermore, some people are born with an extra chromosome. Human, you know, uh, we're supposed to have, human beings are supposed to have 46 chromosomes. Uh, but some people, again, genetic things happen, mistakes defects. Some people get born with an extra one or an extra two or three sometimes or sometimes less than one. They might be born with 47 or 48 or they might be born with 45. Sometimes what happens is you'll have a, a, a man born with an extra chromosome, an extra X chromosome. So he'll have his Y chromosome, but he'll be XXY. So he's, he's still a man. He's got the Y chromosome. He's definitely a, a male, okay? But because he has the extra X chromosome, and we have people like this in our church, tremendous empathy. Some of the struggles they've gone through, it's really, it's really unbelievable. But because the extra X chromosomes, they will have extra female uh, characteristics, breasts, all kinds of things, and, and, and different issues. Um, but again, there's still, there's, this is not a third gender. This is a, a mistake. You know, there's not a continuum. Be- babies are born around the world uh, all the time with uh, extra fingers and extra toes. There's various conditions that cause that. And we don't say based on that, hey, there's a continuum of human hands and there's a continuum of, you know, some have 10 fingers on their two hands and some have 12 or, or whatever. We don't say there's a continuum of toes. We say that was a birth defect. We need to have compassion on these people. But it doesn't mean there's a continuum here. Does that make sense? And it's the same with gender. Tremendous empathy required. These people go through a lot because there's all kinds of issues that they have with various things that I won't go into. But I, I want to share just briefly and, and, I, and I hope you'll... Uh, excuse me, because this analogy is really oversimplified. Any analogy is oversimplified. And I don't want to oversimplify the struggles that people in this area have. But I think somebody, just to get the logic across, we need an analogy. Are you, are you okay with me doing that? Just, it's oversimplified, but my point is not to oversimplify a complicated issue. But let me explain it to you this way in terms of gender continuum. And I'm going to finish with two statements to just kind of to finish the message. But um, imagine that you're working at a banquet and there's lots of people there, and you're, you're getting the plates ready, and everybody at this banquet had to choose between one or, or, a, or a, between two kinds of vegetables they can have. They, they have to choose one or the other. They can either have carrots or they can have peas. So you're back in the kitchen, and you're filling up. So carrots, 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 oh, peas, peas, carrots, peas. You're filling up these bowls, the different little bowls with the different vegetables. There's just the two vegetables. Now, of course, as, as you're going and you're going fast, and at a certain point, again, this is vastly oversimplified, and this is not to oversimplify a complicated topic, but at some point, you, you spill a little bit and you mix some together. So you spill maybe some carrots into a bowl of peas, okay? So now you've got a mixture where you weren't supposed to have a mixture. Now, my question is, do you now have a third vegetable? Do you? You've got, you still only have two vegetables. It's not like you mix carrots and peas together, oh, I got a piece of corn. Right? I'm right, right? 
You didn't mix the carrots and the peas together. Oh, I got a tomato. I know it's oversimplifying something, but I want you to see something here. We're just looking at logic. You still have two. Now, they might be mixed together where they're not supposed to be, but you still clearly have two vegetables. You have peas and you have carrots. You don't have a third vegetable. You don't have a fourth vegetable. You don't have a continuum between carrots and peas. You have a mixture of carrots and peas. And that same logic applies to intersex. When some of these people are born because of a genetic, you know, accident that happened, a deletion, a whatever, uh, a mistake, and which happens in this world, that someone got born with a mixture of parts. Those people need tremendous empathy, but it certainly can't be used by other people to say now that there's a third kind of gender, there's a fourth kind of gender, there's a continuum of gender. There are two genders. There is male and there is female, just like God created them. So now if we bring it back to the issue of transgenderism, a man who wishes, which is different than intersex. Intersex is what is being used by some people to argue that people should be able to choose their gender. Um, if we go back to transgenderism, to finish this message, people who, you know, where you have a man who wishes he was a woman or a woman who wishes she was a man. Let, let, let me finish this message with two statements. I just want to, just for clarity and for how should we think about this as a church. First of all, we should be helping transgendered people to feel loved and supported. Absolutely, 100%. We should make them, we should, they should feel valued. That's what they desperately need, okay? But notice there's an and. We should be helping transgender people feel loved and supported and we should be helping them to accept their biological sex. It's how God made them, and the more they try to resist how God made them, the more they try to resist that biological reality will not set them free, it will imprison them further. And uh, I, I just read an article yesterday. It's so heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because a lot of people really are trying to help them. It's out of empathy. They're saying, this is, they're so confused inside. Let's help them resolve this. And they think that they're helping them resolve it by helping them be something they biologically aren't. And so uh, there's lots of surgeries happening and stuff now. And I read something, and the media doesn't even want to report on this. But they, uh, in terms of these sex reassignment surgeries, many, many, many of these people that go in for a surgery to try to change their biological sex afterwards struggle with, uh, there's huge rates of suicide, suicide, suicidal attempts and thoughts and depression and then regret. And many of them, many, 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 many of them want to go back and change the original change. Is that loving is that loving and compassionate to be doing this to people? No. We should be helping them feel loved and valued as they were made. Amen. Secondly, it is also not compassionate or safe or wise to open up bathrooms and change rooms to biological members of the opposite sex. I don't know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that we even have to talk about this in church. But it is, as a society, do we have to love and value and give dignity to these people? Yes. But then to step back as a society and say the way to help these people is to open up bathrooms and change rooms so that the genders come together is not a good solution. It's not helpful for the people who really need help, and it's harmful for, for everybody else. 
And already, I read an article yesterday, there are universities in Canada who have already had to change their transgender policies because predators were taking advantage of it. Not transgender people. I'm not, transgender people aren't, aren't the predators, but predators were taking advantage of transgender policies for voyeurism and that sort of stuff in women's bathrooms at some of our universities here in Canada. And of course that's going to happen. And how would you ever police that to stop it? How would you ever police that to stop it? And why should our kids be exposed to, to the bodies of the opposite sex, or even adults for that matter, all because of a misguided attempt to have empathy for these people that isn't helping them anyway? And so as Christians, these are things I think we need to talk through and we need to pray through. And, uh, and that's that for today. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? This is not the kind of message... You will go into your journaling this week. I don't have a weekly challenge for you this week. Boy, how am I going to apply this message? This is a worldview world message. This is one of the beginnings, worldview, how do we approach this issue kind of messages. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our Lord of this church, and you are Lord of this country. And we as a church here at Southland want to be able to make you proud. We want you to be able to be proud of the way we have conducted ourselves in, the ta- in this day and age that you have put us in. We want you to be proud of the way we have loved people, that we would love people like you love them, that we would be welcoming to people like you were welcoming, and yet, Lord, that we would be absolutely bold and uncompromising, filled with compassion, but uncompromising on your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.